Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 43 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the Ashtanga yoga teacher, Eddie Stern. What'd you guys talk about? Breathing. Yeah. Breath. Yeah. <laughs> the body's natural rhythms. We got particularly into the idea of fear, the problem of fear, a subject that I think too often isn't discussed in yoga conversations. And in the case of Eddie, how fear has really shaped this complicated relationship he's had with the late guru, Patabi Joyce, uh, who posthumously was accused of sexual assault. And we also got into just how the yoga community at large is dealing with this sort of reckoning in the era of Me Too. Uh, we talked about slowing down and how that shifts our relationship to ourselves. And I think most excitingly, actually, we got into the fact that Eddie, before becoming a yoga teacher, he was involved in the 1980s New York City punk rock scene and sort of got into how he went from that world to the world of yoga. Fascinating journey. Yeah, both radical approaches to life. Also, I, I just want to note that I love the images that mm -hmm. accompany this episode on timesensitive.fm. I'm particularly excited about that. But before we jump into it, we'd first like to thank our season three sponsor, the German watchmaker, Alanga and Zuna. Alang and Zuna has an intimate relationship with inner workings as well. In this case, those within a watch and an understanding that by honing their inner workings, they can create something truly exquisite and resolved. A good example is the seemingly simplistic Saxonia. Mm -hmm. The front of this watch displays a pure functional face with exceptional clarity, but turn it over and a sapphire crystal case back exposes an immaculately finished in-house manually wound caliber. It also reveals hand-applied ribbing, gold chatons, jewels, and blued polished screws. In total, there are 166 finely finished and polished twice-assembled parts inside. Everything in the movement and throughout the watch reflects the intensive, uncompromised approach taken to design and construction. Crafting each of these watches stems from long traditions and also requires deep focus and patience. Mm -hmm. To find out more about Alang and Zuna's Saxonia and to take a look at their other watches that feature crystal case backs, visit alange-soehne.com. And now here's Spencer and Eddie. Hi, Eddie. Welcome to Time Sensitive. It's so great to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So to begin, I thought it'd be nice. Maybe we just uh, take a nice long breath. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and now let's talk about breathing, particularly in relationship to time. How do you think about breathing in the context of time and one's life? Well, you can almost measure your life in breaths. So, you know, say you live somewhere 
between the years of 80 to 90 years old. You'll breathe about 600 million times, so that's quite a lot. During the day, you know, we breathe about 21,600 times average. If we're breathing, you know, 15 to 18 breaths per minute, we have a lot of breathing going on that we're not really paying all that much attention mm. to. And um, it's interesting because the yogis always measure the lifespan mm. against how many breaths you're taking. And so they wouldn't measure your life in years. They would measure your life in breaths, and that's why they would count them. And the idea was that your breath was like a bank account and that if you breathed slower, you would save those extra breaths that you were allotted into this bank account and it would extend your life. So that if we normally breathe, say, 15 times per minute, and then we slow that down to, say, 10 times per minute or 5 times per minute or less, then all those extra breaths that we're saving up we can still use those later because those were our allotment of breath. Mm. So they go into our breathing bank account and uh, and we get to, to withdraw those later to extend the life. I'm just thinking about the context of breathing also in relationship to environment in this context. What impact does environment have on our breath and our breathing? Our environment basically is breathing us. So we have a couple things. Number one, just to reference the yogis again, <laughs> they considered that we had two physical bodies. We had our physical body like the one that we see now, and then we had an extended physical body, which was the world around us. And so the sky and the clouds and the plants and the trees and the soil and the rivers and everything is our extended physical body. And so the biosphere, which is what the planet is called that we live in, and, you know, the surrounding atmosphere, mm -hmm. because of the pressure difference between the biosphere and our lungs, there's this constant pressure exchange. Mm -hmm. So the biosphere is actually breathing us. We are being breathed by the environment that we live in. So when you're born, for example, your lungs are completely deflated, for lack of a better word, because you haven't taken a breath yet. The air that comes rushing in when you take that first breath is from atmospheric pressure. It's about 500 times stronger than any breath that you'll take any other time in your life. And so, and that gets this whole, you know, rhythmic pattern of it being in an exchange with our environment happening. So you have this idea that, you know, actually we're being breathed by the environment that we live in, the biosphere, all the time. Um, but yet, because of all the different things that happen in our lives, little traumas and the fears and the this, that, the other, we start to hold on to our breath. So if you are in an environment where there's a lot of stress around you, the action of the nervous system to respond to that is to tighten the breath, to tighten the thing which is keeping us alive. But when we go into places where there's not a lot of stress around us, then that uh, tendency to tighten around the breath is going to relax. And then the breathing happens naturally again. Say like when you go to sleep and it's a mm -hmm. deep restful sleep. There's no tension around the breathing for the most part. So the breath will come in and go out very calmly and naturally. Mm -hmm. You wake up and if you're anxious about something, the breath will automatically tighten. That's, the nervous system is, is doing that in response to the environment. So basically, you know, we have this thing in us called the nervous system. And the nervous system is coordinating the communication of every single cell in our body. And there's, you know, 37.2 trillion of them. Coordinating all that communication 
with the external environment that we live in. So mm. our whole nervous system and our whole being is a constant response to the environment that we live in. Mm. And that's why creating intentional environments are going to have a direct impact on the communication within you, your states of health, the levels of well-being that you feel, or the levels of stress that you feel. Mm. You mentioned rhythm, and obviously our heartbeat is so connected to this notion of rhythm. It is rhythm. How do you view and think about rhythm in this conversation of time and ultimately rhythm in connection to yoga and to spirituality and to just how we live our lives? How does one or how should one think about rhythm in the context of their life? The rhythms of our lives are the things that really we want to be tuning into. Uh, the more balanced our rhythms and our patterns and our rituals are, uh, the more balanced our lives will be and sometimes the more fulfilling our lives will be. For example, if we look again to our physiological systems, we have different rhythms that are being propagated independently of, of any thought process, independently of anything at all. You know, well, okay, here are two examples. Um, number one, we have a circadian rhythm, which you've heard of, mm -hmm. many people have heard of. This is our sleeping and waking cycle. And the circadian rhythm is being activated by something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which sits in the center of the brain, which is tracking day, light, and darkness, the night, through the eyes. So our eyes are basically brain tissue. When we're developed in the womb, there are two places where tissue grows directly out of the brain and connects to an organ. So our retinas are actual, these are our brain. Mm. And then also our olfactory nerves in the nose, these are brain cells coming out as well. All the other nerves that are happening for the other sense organs are coming through the cranial nerves. So they're inside the skull, then they come outside the skull and connect. But these are coming directly out and they're touching the world. So right now as we're looking at each other, our brains are actually connecting with each other right mm. now in this very moment. And our brains are also touching the environment. It's touching the air around us and mm. it's touching light around us. So. The actual sense of seeing is a tactile thing as well, that right now what we normally think of as being inside of our skulls is physically touching the external world, and we're pulling that input into us. And then we're going to respond to it as well. If you smile at me and I sense there's a crinkling in your eyes and, and there's a warm feeling coming from you, I'll respond to that this is safe, this is friendly, this mm -hmm. is fun. You know, he, he's not threatening, he likes me. I feel good about myself. But if you're smiling at me and your eyes are in a cold, dead stare, mm. I'll know that there's something <laughs> menacing about that smile and this guy's Dexter or something and I need to take a few <laughs> steps back. So, you know, we, we're perceiving the environment responding to it. But back to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, um, it's tracking the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars. And so when it gets dark out, begins to release melatonin and other things, and we go to sleep. Wake up in the morning, this same nucleus in our brain has been tracking the movement you know, of the planet mm. and of the sun, and then it knows, okay, now's the time to start waking up, and it begins releasing cortisol. So we have these chemical rhythms and patterns mm. that are happening in us in response to the environment. Now, our whole physiological mechanism is made up of different patterns. 
Our liver follows the pattern. Our stomach follows the pattern. Our heart rates are following the pattern. Uh, the brain waves. So everything within us are following these, you know, their own rhythms and their own patterns. Um, mm. An interesting pattern of the heart rate is that every time the um, Earth spins on its axis in one 24-hour period, our heart beats approximately 108,000 times. And the number 108 is a sacred number in the Hindu tradition and Buddhist tradition as well. Mm. There's a lot of different significance to it, but one of the significances is the distance between the Earth and the moon. You can fit 108 uh, moons, I believe it is, from the Earth up until the moon. There's this um, coherence of this number 108 or very close to 108 that's you know, between mm -hmm. all those different entities. So even in the world that we live in, there are these mathematical you know, patterns that our body is in sync with on certain levels. So what do we do within in yoga, for example? We're tuning into these patterns, like what's the pattern of my breath? What's the pattern of my awareness? What are the patterns of my emotions? Like is there a time of the day or is there a circumstance that gets me more upset, that gets me more anxious? Um, you know, what are the patterns of my memories of the past? Do my memories come up at certain times that, you know, that I need to look at or be aware of or examine? Mm. So, you know, I like the idea of rhythm and I like the idea of pattern because the biosphere that we live in is just a collection of patterns. We move from one season to the next, from day into night, from one age into the next. And uh, by observing the patterns and living in harmony in them, we learn a lot about we're just not these individual independent beings that exist in and of ourselves, but we exist in concert with all the other patterns that are present here at the same time. So mm -hmm. can we live with those patterns or are, you know, are we living against them? On the subject of nervous system regulation, which you've called our internal social network, and I, <laughs> I definitely prefer that social network to certain digital ones we have to deal with right or don't have to deal with i guess <laughs> these days breathing is really a way of steadying the nervous system as you explained and i i was just curious kind of how you think about the nervous system in relation to really the five senses the idea that how we construct our world is a result of our relationship to our nervous system we have these five sense organs we have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, and our skin. And all of those are bringing in information from the world around us. And that information is traveling through the nerves, which are connecting these organs to the brain. And then the brain is processing that information in different types of ways. Mm. And the way that the brain is going to process that information is determined by the amount of bandwidth of information that's allowed to enter in at any given time. So, for example, we see a certain spectrum of colors limited to these seven colors and their permutations of them that can make up a whole lot of options for us. I mean, just open any Pantone book and you can see how many choices they are. But by any standards of a lot of the beings that exist in the world, that's pretty limited. You have the fighting shrimp, which live at the bottom of the ocean, which, you know, we have three cones in our eyes for seeing colors. They have a thousand. They can see more color spectrum than any being that we know of on the planet. So there are a lot of other animals and species that have a tremendous, tremendous bandwidth for experiencing color. But we're limited to what we're limited to. 
And the same is true with sound and with smell and with taste and with touch. That information comes in for whatever reasons our bandwidth is going to limit it to that amount. And then we construct that as reality. And we assume because I'm experiencing this, it's real. But it's only real for us as human beings. It's not real for us as a dog or a cat or a butterfly or, you know, mm -hmm. a three-toed sloth <laughs> or anything like that or a whale, right? Or a cloud. Um, in, in the Jain tradition, they consider that all beings have sense organs. And humans have five. But there are other beings, say like a carrot, that maybe only has two sense organs. And so, therefore, like when you're choosing the food that you eat, you choose your food, which is the lowest on the chain of having sense organs, mm -hmm. so you cause the least amount of harm. Because the more sense organs you have, the more harm you'll cause, the more pain that being will experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, how does a carrot experience the world? Like, we have no idea. <laughs> you know, we, don't, we don't know how a cat experiences the world. Mm -hmm. We know how we experience a cat, that's all. So... Again, just to come back to this, you know, meditation and to yoga, which is, I mean, I think that's why I'm here because I'm a yoga teacher, <laughs> um, is that we are trying to understand our bandwidth and maybe expand it a little. And if we can't really expand the bandwidth all that much, what we can come to realize is our bandwidth is only, it's assumed, it's the illusory perception of reality that we're living with. And if we don't take that perception too seriously, but understand that it's filled with change and that it's just our perception and other beings might perceive it differently, then we cause less conflict with ourselves and with other beings as well. So part of living a contemplative life is to understand perception, to understand the sense organs. And then when our awareness begins to move inward away from thinking that the sense organs are the only experience of reality that we have, which is how many people live, we start to feel in sense like, well, who's the experiencer of this? Mm. You know, what's this level of awareness below the sense organs, which is experiencing and then deciding what that information is? And can I live with this level of, of awareness in this level of being? So that being is the thing or awareness or seeing is the thing which is my real identity and not all the things out in the world that I'm experiencing through the sense organs and thinking are real and define me. Mm. So bandwidth is one way of limiting our identity to the things that our sense organs experiences. That will be one great limitation. Or we can expand that to feel what's the awareness underneath the sense organs? And what happens if I pull my awareness away from thinking that my experience through the sense organs is the real one? Then who will I be? What will I be experiencing there? And that's what the contemplatives like to do. Mm. This idea of um, animism, that, that there's energy embedded in everything. I was curious what you think about animism. You know, there are all these different philosophical systems in Hinduism. And one of them is called Sankhya. And Sankhya means to count. And what it does is it counts all the different evolutes of nature. And nature and consciousness are said to be two separate things. They're both eternal principles. And so nature is a tremendous potential to manifest in any of the ways that things are manifested. So all the infinite things that exist in existence exist because of nature's permutations. 
like this microphone and my body are both different permutations of nature and my body has a little bit more of say a balance of inertia energy and reflection and this microphone maybe has a little bit more of an embodiment of inertia because it's steady you know it's not going to move on its own mm. we're going to have to pick it up so it's primarily like a heavier material but we're a mix of all three so we can do a bunch more things than this microphone can do uh, there's also a thing about electricity and energy within this microphone that this microphone is going to need an external source of energy to power it where we have our own internal source of energy but we're made up of the same stuff but the ingredients levels are different so from a sankhya point of view everything is nature and that's all there is to it but is everything conscious well that's a that's a different discussion yeah so what do i think of it i think that you know right now my basic feeling is existence exists and the things that exist within existence change they always change that's the nature of of existence but the fact that existence exists seems to have not changed for a very very long time so the fact that existence exists i'm going to call that consciousness and that the things in existence which are changing all the time i'm going to call nature mm. and those things are going to be permutating you know we've how long has this universe been here that we know of we've counted 15 billion years back and this planet about 4.2 billion or something like that but it hasn't always been the same like this right it's only very recently that it's been like this so it's mm. going to continue to change that's all part of existence the change the in yoga they call this padinama mm. which means change everything changes mm -hmm. and what comes along with change suffering hardship and so the yogis were interested in seeing well if i recognize that everything changes and if you identify with change that causes suffering then what happens if i don't identify with change with nature but i identify with existence and then i feel the existence part of me as awareness as witness as whatever mm -hmm. then will i move beyond the identity of suffering mm. this is a great segue um, <laughs> i wanted to bring up this sort of east west idea but really more thinking about the west and how we live in this culture of busyness, speed. You've described it as sensory indulgence in your book, uh, which I loved. Overstimulation, overdrive. I mean, we're just constantly on. And adrenaline and cortisol are they're run amok basically. <laughs> so how do you think this has been and is shifting our relationship with ourselves, with our being, with time? And what does slowing down do in terms of aiding us physiologically, physically, psychologically? Well, that's a pretty big question. Many barreled. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's that's fine. It's great. I you know there is something about speed which is driving our world right now. Speed of the internet. That's really important. We like our Wi-Fi. You know, we like things to function. Speed is um you know something that we're very interested in our society but it's also it's not something that the rest of the universe isn't interested in also i mean if we're looking at movement and if we're looking at time and space that we're part of light moves pretty fast also so it's not like we're the only thing in the world which is moving fast 
maybe we're just one of the things in the world which has lost control of it a little bit and that our capacity to deal with speed and monitor speed hasn't matured yet. But maybe it will, you know, maybe with each generation which is born into these times where things are really fast, they get used to it and it becomes normal for them and they can handle it better than middle-aged people like me can. <laughs> or nature demands of us that we respond to speed in a different way. Exactly. So I'll say two things, two uncomplicated things. Number one, the way that our bodies work is that at a certain time, we need to slow down. We need to sleep. We need to sleep seven to eight hours a night. Really important things are happening when we sleep. We call it a slowing down only because our body isn't physically moving through space. We're lying relatively inert in one place for maybe tossing and turning a little. But tremendous processes are happening in the body. We have an amazing system called the glymphatic system in the brain. Do you know about the glymphatic no. system? Yeah. It's so cool. What it does is it, it operates primarily when we're asleep. Mm. And it's responsible for draining the debris from the brain that collects during the day from thinking. So thinking is a physical act. And when we think, we have all these synapses firing. Mm -hmm. That's electricity. And the electricity is leaving residue. And that residue, you know, those are like amyloids and all other types of things that if they're not cleared from the brain, they start to gunk it up. Mm -hmm. You know, like oil can gunk up a carburetor. Yeah, it's like your, your desktop when it gets f filled with icons and files and you have to throw it in the recycling. Yeah, exactly. So the glymphatic system is removing the debris from the brain that collects from thinking during the day. Mm. Happens when we sleep. Very important. That's one of the reasons why, you know, if you wake up the next morning with a nice night of sleep, you might feel a little bit more refreshed. A lot of cellular repair is happening, tissue repair is happening. All these important uh, reparation processes are going on while we sleep. Uh, as well, we are doing things on emotional and psychological levels with integrating experiences of the day through dreaming and things like that. Mm. So even though we're slowing down, it's for repair and assimilation to occur. So that's really important. And um, during the day, you know, of course, if we, if we keep going too fast all the time, our nervous system is going to respond to that speed by releasing chemicals that support speed that make mm -hmm. us go faster and faster. That's not what our bodies were designed to do. And at a certain point, either we'll burn out or we'll fry ourselves in different ways or we'll get sick or, you know, we'll not be able to think clearly. We'll make mistakes. We'll, all those types of things that we experience already of lack of focus and lack of task completion and short tempers and not being able to assimilate our emotions and all that. That all comes from speed. So slowing down is really important. And the traditional cultures and the wisdom traditions had ways of slowing down periodically throughout the day. That would be rituals that you perform in the morning or going to church every day or once a week or certain times of the week where you go and do rituals with your tribe or your group of mm. people. And we don't have in sort of the quote-unquote modern societies that are moving away from religion – we don't have the same rituals built into our everyday life, which have been actually really helpful for people to reconnect to purpose and reconnect to meaning. So I think a lot of people who have moved away from religion now move to things like meditation or to yoga or tai chi or other modalities because there's an intrinsic need within us to slow down. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And in that slowing down, we're reconnecting with our sense of purpose, with our sense of being, reconnecting with the things that are important with us, maybe family or friends. So it's really something that needs to be recaptured. And I think that with COVID, as horrible as this has been for the world, there has been a sense for some people of being able to, being in a forced slowdown, which has helped them to reconnect with either themselves or mm. or with people. And I know that before COVID, I was really starting to wonder if I should still be a yoga teacher. I thought maybe I should go back to school and uh, I'd never gone to college. I thought maybe I should get a degree and maybe I should really move more in towards science and research that I'm really interested in. And there's so much going on in the yoga world and, you know, a lot of the pain and um, fallen gurus or sexual abuse and the things that um, just have been really hard for many people, uh, painful for many people and, and um, uh, challenging and tearing apart communities and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I just wondered, am I in the right place, you know? And um, then with COVID, when I started teaching online like everybody else, it allowed me to pull back a little from all of that pain that uh, I had been seeing around me. And I was able to reconnect again with just being a yoga teacher. And I've rediscovered Mm. my love for teaching yoga. Mm. Again, being online, being on Zoom. So, uh, you know, at a certain point, like towards the summertime, I realized again, you know, this is what I am. Like I'm a yoga teacher. And and I've been really excited about that again. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, this technology idea in connection to spirituality, in connection to yoga, in connection to the very idea of connection. Technology is a tool that we so often talk about as something that divides us, as something that causes a lot of alarm, specifically social media. And I'm just curious, as someone who's found it as a tool for healing and who has also created these other tools like your new app, Yoga365, or the breathing app. How do you think about the role of technology in our lives and in, in, in relationship to how we should be thinking about finding a healthy sort of mind-body-spirit experience? Well, if you live in a society that uses a lot of technology, then discipline is good to have. That's one thing. Boundaries. Yeah, definitely. Yoga is founded on boundaries. The first thing that you find in yoga are the boundaries, uh, Mm. the healthy boundaries of behavior. I think it's not a good idea for people to demonize technology because we're the ones who have created it. Mm -hmm. You know, just didn't come out of nowhere, you know, falling from the sky like stardust. Uh, So... If we're part of the culture that has created these things, then we have to be part of the culture that decides how to use it and mm. what the best uses of it are. And there are best practices for tech and there are poor practices for tech. Poor practices include trolling people and being abusive and um, you know, spreading conspiracy theories and <laughs> using it to plan insurgent attacks on the government and stuff like that. <laughs> like Those aren't best practices. Um, And there are other ways that we can use technology, which everyone knows are good. Like there are a lot of people, I'm not a Facebook user, but there are a lot of people who mainly connect to family and friends through it. They love Mm -hmm. it. 
and the same with Instagram and, and stuff like that. Mm. I quite like teaching online because people are in their, you know, they're in their own space and I'm in my own space and I give them a tool that they can use that hopefully will make their lives a little better mm. and make them happier. And then, and then that's theirs to use. So it, it feels to me like in that teaching setting, there's a little bit more of an even spread or sharing of knowledge rather than this top-down approach to knowledge. Like I'm the one teaching, you're the one receiving. And, you know, this is how a lot of the, you know, the vibe has been set up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not talking about India, I'm talking about the Western yoga mm -hmm. scene. Those huge festivals with like, you know, someone on a stage, you know, teaching to hundreds and hundreds of people and the idea of rock star yogis like that was all something that was created in those fest those yoga mm. festival things like that wasn't something we ever heard about in the 1980s this was like recent stuff and that stuff is not good for people it's not good for students it's not good for the teachers there needs to be uh, especially for western people who we are not Hindus, we're not Indians, yoga is not part of our culture. We're privileged to have experienced these practices and we, we're privileged to be able to share them. So we have to do that mm -hmm. with great respect and great humility and with the understanding that we're not the owners of this information. Um, we're being invited to be a participant in sharing this information. Mm. And as a participant of the sharing of information, we have to do it or try to do it in such a way that we don't put ourselves above the other people who wanna share in this knowledge as well. Yes, I might know a little bit more than you, but you know more than me about something else. And you can help me in certain ways. And, and, and what I can do is I can maybe help you with yoga and that's it. But the sharing base of knowledge and information needs to become a little bit more level so that um, you know we use it properly. Otherwise, we don't. We use mm. it for self-aggrandizement. We use it for narcissistic reasons. We use it for power. You know, we use it for whatever. And there's a lot of that happening. So being behind a computer teaching and allowing people to be in their own spaces, there's no competition because no one's looking at each other. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only a sharing of information. People can ask questions at the end of class and people hang out for a little bit or whatever. But then we all go off and we're on, on our own. And so I'm not trying to romanticize it. It's just a very practical thing. Like people seem to me that they're able to preserve their own energy boundaries a little bit better in that setting rather than being in a big, huge setting with lots of people where those boundaries get a little bit hazy sometimes. Not everybody likes yoga on Zoom, I get it. Like, honestly, a lot of my New York students don't come to class. Um, most of the people who are coming are from different places now. But I honestly, there's something about it that I, I find to be good. Hmm. This commodification, if we can call it that, of yoga in the West, how do, how do we reconcile this divide or collision between the sort of spiritual element of yoga and the consumerist side? Yoga, meditation, spirituality are not transaction-free, and they never have been. It's just that the nature of the transactions can be different. So if we go back thousands of years to India, and you were going to come learn from a guru, you would go stay with the guru 
for, this is not in all cases, but in many, you would go stay with them. And uh, at the end of your study, the guru would ask for some type of a payment. That payment could be anything. It says in one Upanishad, the Taitiri Upanishad, that uh, at the conclusion of the studies, the student should give that which is dear to the teacher. So that is the that is the offering. So if the teacher says, like in the case of Krishnamacharya, go teach yoga, you know, don't become the head of a monastery, but get married, have a family and teach yoga, that was the Guru Dakshina. That's what he should do. There are also typically situations where the students will collect wood to bring to the sacrificial fire to keep the fire burning and the offerings going. And the the sacrificial fires are also transactions where you make prayers to the fire, you give offerings so that something is bestowed upon you as well, a blessing perhaps, Mm. or that the rains fall on time, or that nature stays in cycle, or that there's a good king to rule the land. (laughs) So these are all transactional things, and they're not bad. It's just to maintain order. Now we do things like, you know, we have to charge money for yoga or meditation because the state of our world now demands that a transaction is monetary. That's how we pay our rent and buy our food in India, in New York, all over. So the trick is to understand that part of the transaction and to not get out of hand with it. You don't want to be greedy. You don't want to overvalue yourself and, and take more than you deserve. And so... That's going to be something up to the individual to monitor over time. Like, am I getting out of control mm-hmm. with my transactions? Mm. Um, or are they, you know, within the bounds of sanity or health or, or whatever? So, you know, usually if you don't have enough moral strength within you to watch that, then there'll be checks and balances in the world where if you get out of control, eventually you, you, something is going to make you fall down. Mm. You know, it will be pulled out away from you if you get greedy. That's because transactions don't just happen between people. They happen between actions, nature, and people as well. You know, the downfalls of of great societies and the downfalls of opulence, you know, why do those happen? Because something is out of balance and nature is going to write that imbalance. Story of our time right now. It's the story of every time. Yeah. We don't always get to witness it up close. Like yeah, we just COVID did. a little. But it's always yeah. there, you know? So, so it goes back to your earlier question of like rhythm and pattern mm-hmm. and living in harmony with, with time and living in harmony with rhythms and patterns. And a lot of that has to do with like not being greedy, mm. um, you know, not going too fast, not demanding that the transaction be more than what you really are worth. And all of those things take heightened levels of awareness, hence contemplative practice, just mm. to be aware mm. of it. You know, when I first started teaching yoga in 1989, I was teaching at Shivananda and uh, also at Jiva Mukti, which was then called the Jiva Mukti Yoga Society. And... Um, you weren't paid for teaching. Teaching yoga was service. It's called seva. You only taught as a service to the yoga school and the community. People would come to the yoga schools. They would pay the yoga schools because the yoga school had to pay the rent and stuff like that. But the teachers were not paid. Mm. We were very happy to not be paid because we felt we were doing a service. And this is what uh, Sampadananda Mishra, who I was just doing an interview with yesterday on mm. Instagram, who said we grow by giving, mm. you know, and that's one of the the hallmarks of the Hindu tradition is, and of living a, a conscious spiritual life. And so when we were teaching yoga simply for free like that, that was very, very satisfying. 
It was just pure giving. When I first had to accept money for teaching yoga, I didn't have to, but I did start accepting it. I felt so unclean. I felt like I have really gone against everything that I was raised to believe. <laughs> and um, then, but then, you know, of course. You have to eat. Yeah, I have to eat. And then I grew to be appreciative of the fact that I, I, I could do that. And um, mm. right now, we're experimenting with a model that we've been doing since March, which is that all of our yoga classes are donation only. If you can't afford to donate, that's okay because it's Zoom. You get the link anyway when you register mm. and anyone can come. And we have about 30% of the people are able to donate and about 70 in the time of COVID or depending on where they live aren't able to or they donate a dollar or something. And uh, Knockwood so far, um, you know, <laughs> we're getting by. I, and I like it because I feel like, oh, I'm, I can recapture a little bit of that feeling that I had where I don't have to be counting how many people are in the classroom to mm, make sure, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to get by. Uh, it's a privileged position to be in, to have enough people to come where you can just do it by donations and still pay New York City rent. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I also like the experiment. And mm. uh, we do have some programs that we, we suggest people pay for, but my daily classes are basically just like that. Often people ask me, what does yoga mean to me? Or mm. What's my definition of yoga? And I really honestly think that what's more important is that I try to understand what the yoga tradition says yoga is and not what I think it is or what it means to me. What it means to me doesn't matter so much as what the tradition says that it is. I think that's really a lot of our job as yoga teachers, like or should be, to, to endeavor to understand what does the tradition hold and then to follow along with those things the best we can. Mm. And that's one of the ways we can protect the, you know, the spreading and this quote unquote commodification of yoga yeah. to answer your question uh, in a roundabout way. How are these traditions passed on and, and how much has your practice, if at all, been modified? Like how by doing yoga are you connected to the original source? We are all connected to original source. That is one of the basics of all the Hindu philosophies, that every being who is a potential conscious agent is connected to source mm -hmm. in one way or the other. And what we're doing is trying to quiet our minds, to slow the fluctuations of the mind down so that our awareness can move inward and that connection can be reflected in the field of our consciousness. And that becomes our experience of being. So we're all connected to original source. And there are going to be millions and millions of different ways of reminding ourselves of that connection. And those are the different practices. Mm. And so when we study with teachers, all the teachers are doing is they are sharing with us their level experience through the practices that they teach us. And if they're not an experienced person, then the practice that we get is only going to bring us to their level which is fine. And if they're highly experienced and they have deep, deep realizations, then they can help lead us towards deeper levels of realization because what they're passing to us in a headstand or in a forward bend or in a mantra or in a breathing practice is their experience through this vessel, mm. through this practice. That's basically what the tradition holds. If a guru is someone who removes darkness, 
You know, what is the darkness they're removing of not knowing who you really are? And so how far along can they bring you? Only as far as they've gone. They can't bring you further along the path than they've traveled. They can't bring you to deeper levels of experiences than, than they've had. Mm. So that's what happens. You know, we go to teachers, we learn stuff, we learn something about ourselves, and if we're ready to go deeper, either we have that deeper experience on our own or we find another teacher who brings us further along. Mm. It's fascinating to think of these postures or asanas as physical time in a way. Yeah, they are. That's one of the cool things about practices being passed down over time from generation to generation because they get energized. You know, imagine if there are all these beautiful guitars hanging up on the wall here. And if you look at that green guitar there, um, you know, if that was passed down through a couple of generations of amazing guitar players and you picked it up and you're going to be like, oh my God, you know, Buddy Holly played this guitar. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to handle that guitar differently. You're going to be like, whoa, mm. this is really a cool instrument. And I'm just like electric touching it. So the practices get energized and stay alive by people practicing them. Mm. And so when they're practice, when they're practice and taught, practice and taught, they stay alive. You know, they're living entities. Sometimes we talk about these things being passed down over a period of a thousand years. And this is something um, a guy who had studied with Krishnamacharya for a very short time, just I think like only a few months or something, a Westerner told me this story. If we look at a practice being passed down over a period of a thousand years, and generally speaking, people will live between 80 to 100 years, that means that if you have 10 or 15 people in a room and you looked at each of those people as one generation, you've gone back basically a thousand years practically. You're a hundred years and he's a hundred years and he's a hundred years mm. and I'm a hundred. So we've gone, if we strung us back in time, we'd mm. go back 400 years just with four people, just counting them. Mm -hmm. So we can get really far back in time with 10 or 15 or 20 people and see a continuity of ideas and practices that have been passed down from generation to generation. So we can connect ourselves through lineage really mm. far back in time, um, even if we don't know the lineage, and even if we don't know those people who came before necessarily, just by virtue of passing things on. Mm. And I always thought that was really cool because a thousand years sounds like a long way away, but if you look at it in terms of people, it's really, really very close and all of a sudden, it becomes not such a big deal. Like, oh yeah, why shouldn't they have been doing this a thousand years ago? Because mm. we're doing it now. Yeah, I find it fascinating that the average person probably doesn't know who their great-great-grandparent was or what their name was. And that's just a few generations removed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is why in the uh, yogic traditions and also in the philosophical traditions, they're always repeating the names of all the teachers in the lineage going back really far. Mm. And so you, just by repeating it, by telling stories again and again, you keep them alive, you keep the memory alive. Mm. The repetition of the names of the people in your lineage is like a daily practice. Mm. I wanted to go back to your childhood. So not so far <laughs> back in time. Could you share a bit about your parents and, and your upbringing and what your childhood was like? Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and my 
parents got married in the um, early 1960s. Uh, my mom was young. I think she was 19 or maybe 20 when she got married. And my dad a couple, just a year older than her. And they got divorced in 1971. We had lived on the Upper East Side up until then. Mm. And then after they got divorced, uh, my mom moved downtown with my two sisters and I. And so I grew up on McDougal Street from the time I was five years old. Mm. Uh, my dad stayed uptown, my mom stayed downtown, and um, I've been downtown ever since then. <laughs> uh, now I live just on Waverly Place, a couple blocks away from where I grew up. Mm. So it's still fun to be in that area. Mm. Um, we come from a Jewish background. On my mother's side and my father's side, both were very Jewish, but particularly my mother's side was very involved in the creation of the state of Israel. And we had many rabbis on her side of the family. I believe our family tree traces itself back to the Goan Vilna, who was a very wow. uh, esteemed you know, Jewish scholar, uh, very serious, very strict. And um, on my father's side, we're originally from Bohemia mm. uh, in what's now the Czech Republic. But we came to America around 1860 somewhere between 1860 and 1880 on my father's side. And so my great-great-grandfather had a liquor store on Avenue C, and I believe it was 5th or 6th Street, and lived on Eldridge Street. And um, so we've been here in Manhattan you know, <laughs> for 130 years. I, I have this image now of like, you and your youth in the 80s, and the sort of ghost of your great-great-grandfather seeing you running around Alphabet City in a mohawk. I know, exactly. <laughs> and I knew none of this until a couple of years ago. You know, it was only re very recently oh, wow. that I started okay. learning all this mm. in the past you know, six or eight years. So it's really interesting history. But uh, my mother's father, he was a little bit of the outlier of the family. Mm. He had gone to Harvard he got his PhD there and wanted to be a professor of philosophy, but he um, became a private investor and read philosophy on his own, I guess. My mother didn't grow up Jewish at all. In fact, he sent her to a Catholic school on the Upper East Side called Nightingale Bamford. Mm -hmm. And so she grew up, you know, chanting all the Catholic hymns and celebrating Christmas and Easter, which is how we were brought up. I wasn't brought up with any Jewish mm. upbringing. But it's in you. It's in me for sure. You know, my father was, I think, a little bit more observant than my mother, but not terribly, just the high holidays. So I recall going to a synagogue with him, the kids' services at Central Synagogue when I was young. But there was not a lot of religion in our, in our family, not in this side. Mm. So, you know, I got bar mitzvahed when I was 50 years old. Um, I wasn't bar mitzvahed as a kid. I was never sent to Hebrew school. Mm. It was only after my parents both got remarried that I think they discovered a little bit more of their religion. So their second set of kids both had bar and bat mitzvahs. Mm. I got mine when I was 50 with a rabbi that I still study with. He's a Lubavitch rabbi mm. and a um, great guy, Mendel Jacobson. Mm. At what point did you yourself become interested in philosophy and ultimately as well Hinduism? When did that mm. expand for you? when I was 15 in ninth grade, and I had an English teacher named Mrs. Jane Benditson. 
she had us reading Siddhartha, the first book we were reading of the year in her English class. She was a very strict teacher. She said the most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I, what am I doing here, and what do I do next? And at that time, I really hated school. I was lost. I, you know, it wasn't for me, education. Mm. And I didn't really have friends except for a couple friends who were like, you know, the what we would call the bad influence kids, you know, we're into drugs and into all sorts of good music and skateboarding and stuff. But we were not academically minded and we didn't do things that encouraged the study or engagement of academics. But those three questions gave me a format to begin questioning myself, like who was I really and what was important to me and mm. what should I do with my life? And so the idea of what should I do with my life became really important to me from that time. Like going to college was not important to me. Like, was I, did I want to go into music? Did I want to go into art? And so I was just became contemplative. You know, I started thinking about those things and that's really what led me mm. into learning more about philosophy, learning more about, you know, whether it was reading Carlos Castaneda or picking up books like that. And then eventually I found yoga. Mm. Yeah. And you were playing a guitar in a band called Chop Shop at the time. I was. Tell me about your days in the band and the New York punk scene. The New York punk scene was really fun. We would go to CBGB's every Sunday for the hardcore matinees. They were great clubs. I mean, there was Danceteria and the Peppermint Lounge and A7 Pyramid, uh, The World. There are just tons of great places to, to go dancing and to hear live music. And there were amazing bands. There was the Ritz also, great mm -hmm. bands at the Ritz. So I think that, you know, from the time I was around that age up until the time I discovered yoga, Wednesday, the day the Village Voice came out, was sort of like the focal point of the week. Like, who's playing this weekend? <laughs> who's playing, you know, who can we go see? What bands are, are, yeah, are yeah. coming around, you know? And so that was our Bible, the, you know, the listings of the Village Voice. Yeah. But we ran very free in the city. At 15 or 16, we could get into the clubs. They didn't really care to cart us, you know, even at the Palladium or anywhere. So that was it. That was, you know, music and life and hanging out on the streets of St. Mark's Place and um, playing music. Where, where did your band kind of fit into this scene? And, and I think I, I should say, like the, some of these bands were quite big. You had Minor Threat, Agnostic Front. The Beastie Boys came out of this moment. Yeah, the Beastie Boys did come out of that moment. And Mike D uh, uh, still continues to be a great friend, and he mm. practices yoga with me as mm. well. Chop Shop was not a... We had a good following. You know, we could get a Friday night at CBGB's, which was a big thing. But um, we broke up early. Mm. Uh, we fell apart, and uh, and that was that. But we f weren't really a punk rock band. We were what they called a scum rock band. That was a sort of genre of music that I believe we were instrumental in starting on the Lower East Side. Mm. Uh, we were inspired by the Cramps and the Gun Club and the Birthday Party, which was Nick Cave's first band, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, slam dancing <laughs> seems quite far from yoga, but maybe it's not in a I way. I think it's pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a communal activity, but it's, um, I think it's pretty far. Yeah, from the mosh pits mm. of CBGBs to mm. the yoga mats of India was, um, mm. but, you know, 
when you look at Harley and some of the guys in the Cro-Mags mm-hmm. and in some of the other hardcore bands, they were into the Hare Krishna movement early yeah. on. And a lot of punk is quite straight edge. Well, yeah, for sure. Minor Threat and a lot of the, you know, there were all a bunch of peace punk bands as well. So even in that punk rock scene, you know, it was identity. We were looking for our identity and expression. Mm. And we weren't finding the identity that we were looking for in other structures of the world around us, whether it was political structures, which were corrupt, or educational structures, which didn't seem to hold a whole lot of purpose for everyone to go through. So we wanted to create our own structure and create our our own cosmologies and our own viewpoints for which we could express ourselves, Mm. even in terms of fashion and aesthetics and like leave everything else aside. It takes a lot of time to get your mohawk to stand up just right. (laughs) And if you want the color to be good and to hold, that takes a lot of work. And to put all those studs in a leather jacket or put your piercings in the right place or whatever, it is a very considered architecture of design into your outfits, your hair, your look, and everything. This is not just, you know, looking like a total fucking bum. This is like you put a lot Mm -hmm, of thought mm -hmm. into how you want to present yourself to Mm, the world. So... mm. There is as much time and effort put into your perfect punk rock hairdo and piercings and outfit as a debutante going to the ball who's going to get her hair done and pick out her satin dress. Just our satin dresses, you know, were primarily made out of leather and torn plaid. (laughs) (laughs) I understand you you also had a, a goth phase where you were wearing basically exclusively black. What spurred this period? I mean, you know, who didn't, but <laughs> uh, it, it's just, again, it was just identity shifts. Mm. You know, what whatever bands that you were identifying with, Bauhaus, Einzers and the Neubauten, Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, you're going to dress like they dressed. Right. The cult, Southern Death Cult as they were at the time. Yeah. And uh, so that's all there was to it. Who you identify with, that's what you dress like. And that becomes your, your tribe, your club. Mm. Around this time, you, in 86, you were working at a record store, Bleaker Bob's, and it was there that you met a guy who was a vegetarian and had been studying yoga in the 70s. Could you talk about this influence that he had on you? It seems profound that it led to at least a a quite incredible lifestyle shift for you. Yeah, his name was Ted Byorick, and he was from York, Pennsylvania. He was working in the comic book section of Bleaker Bob's and I was in the t-shirt section. And uh, we became buddies. I remember the first question Ted asked me was, um, you know, we introduced ourselves and he said, hey, have you ever tried ecstasy? And um, actually the taking of ecstasy and of mushrooms and things like that with Ted were kind of an entry point into these discussions about enlightenment, samadhi, yoga, kundalini. Mm and all that stuff. He had done yoga with Amrit Desai in the 1970s in Pennsylvania. Amrit Desai was the guru who started Kripalu Yoga, and then he had affairs with some students and he got fired from that particular institution. But Ted had met him you know, a decade and a half earlier to that. So Ted really introduced me to the yogic thought systems, but it was mainly meditation and chanting and not really asanas so much as it was other stuff. And that's how I got started. And then I started realizing that through yoga and meditation, according to the texts, I could get to those places of insight and realization 
that I was finding from psychedelics, but I could do it without psychedelics. Mm. And so I stopped taking drugs. This was when, by the time I was 19, I was totally clean and totally straight edge, no drinking, no smoking, no drugs, nothing, and vegetarian. And it was all from reading those yoga texts, realizing this is what I'm actually seeking. I'm seeking this, what's described as liberation or enlightenment mm. of a total, full, complete knowing of who the essence of my being is. And I thought, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. And the best way to get there is through the direct path of engaging with that mm. and not letting anything else get in the middle of that you know, communication like psychedelics. So I stopped and that was it. That was really the end of my drug days. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, thanks to Ted that I, that I got on that path. By the late 80s, 89, you're, you're a yoga teacher in Manhattan, where back then there were really only a handful of yoga studios here in New York. Could you describe your path in teaching and, and your journey to Mysore, India, and studying with Patabi Joyce, whom you met? Well, the journey was that there were a couple of yoga schools in the city, and I would go to those places and take yoga. At that time, I thought you had to be enlightened to be a yoga teacher. Mm. And so I thought that the teachers there were probably enlightened or at least, you know, raised their kundalini or something. There was Ravi Singh teaching kundalini yoga. There was Jiva Mukti and there was Dharma Mitra and Shivananda. So I went to all those places and I didn't know that I could become a yoga teacher. I didn't know about yoga teacher trainings or anything like that. And um, then my teacher suggested that I go to India and take the teacher training and then come back and maybe teach at their school. So I did, and that was that. Um, I was nervous to go to India. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know where I was going, nothing, but landed and loved it. The teacher who was leading the teacher training course I took was named Swami Shankarananda who was a Swami for 23 years. He stopped in 1995, um, got married and had some three kids. And he continues to be a very close friend. We publish a magazine together called Namarupa that we've been publishing for, I think, 13 or 14 years now. So I, you know, I definitely have a lot of lifelong friends from those days. Mm. Uh, there was something interesting happening, creative things that bound me together with certain people. Mm. And but sadly, I lost touch with Ted. You know, I was running a T-shirt business, and Ted was the second partner I had. We lived in a tiny apartment on Thompson Street. It was no bigger than this room that we're sitting in now, including a bathroom and a kitchen, mm. and maybe even a little narrower. And it was six hundred and fifty dollars. We lived in it. We would print T-shirts, you know, sell T-shirts all over the place, rock and roll T-shirts, and that's what we did. And then after I got really interested in yoga, and thought this is what I'm going to do with my life, I sold my half of the business to him, and that's when I went off to India to mm. to see what would happen next. Mm. That was 1988. And you studied with Joyce from '91 to 2009. What were some of the greatest learnings or? things that happened to you or helped transform you during that time? I do have to say at the outset that um, Patabi Joyce has had multiple sexual abuse mm -hmm. allegations put forth to him, even though he's no longer alive. Um, I don't know if allegations is the right word, but he sexually abused women. And um, that 
has been a very difficult thing for uh, number one for the women and number two for the community to figure out how to deal with it and many people have um, dealt with it in, in different ways and I've had my own struggles in dealing with this as well mm. and understanding um, you know my own personal mindset that I came into being a student of his with you know, when I first arrived in Mysore and studied with him, um, you know, I wasn't too sure if I felt that he was my teacher, but I liked his yoga. Um, and I thought the yoga was very good, but I wasn't sure about him, like, is this the person for me? But after a couple of years, I thought, I'm going to dedicate myself to this anyway and, and see what happens. And And that was you know what happened but there there were so many other things that were wrapped up in that as well like um you know he wasn't i don't believe he was running a cult at all i don't think he was sophisticated enough to do that but i also think on on many levels he wasn't a very good person and on mm -hmm. other levels he was like he was a very good yoga teacher but you know how do you how do you parse those two things apart mm -hmm. you know you know, if you're abusing people on the one hand and then teaching yoga on the other hand, are those two things mutually exclusive? And I have a hard time thinking that they are, to be honest. Yeah. And this goes back to, I guess, what you were saying earlier about before COVID, wondering, is this something? That was a lot of it. But even though I don't think he was running a cult, I think that we had a cult-like mentality mm -hmm. to the group of people who were there. And... um and one of the things that happens within cults is there's this, you know, there's fear of survival, there's fear of belonging, there's all these different fears. And for the women who are being abused, for them to survive, they have to leave. You know, they have the somehow they muster the internal strength to leave from that situation. And, and for other people, you know, like me, for example, my need for survival and my fear for, for for surviving causes me to stay because that's how I I maintain myself. So I feel that I I was living in a in a really fear-based existence in in many ways and that closeness to the guru and importance in the entire community then became part of my survival mechanism. Like I needed this for my identity and for whatever issues I was I was dealing with. So I think in retrospect, just looking back at it, that many of us were living in this cult-like mentality and that the need to survive what we were going through, uh, on whatever level that it was, caused different people to do different things. Over the past year, a, a movement away from being too deeply involved in that community has been a part of me getting over that mentality, you know, the, because there's a lot of fear still existing um, within it. And, um, and fear doesn't lead towards treating people well mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't lead towards listening and acting and standing up for people who need to be stood up for uh, it doesn't allow us to to behave the way that we should be the right way and 
not just in accordance with yogic principles, but with human principles. Hmm. So um, I don't have a lot of romantic feelings of my days in India at this point. Yeah. I'm very appreciative of what I learned. I'm very grateful for what I learned. I'm grateful for the practices that I've learned. Those have been very helpful to me. But I have to level with the the pain that has been caused to women in the community and to others in the community as well because of the actions of Patabi Joyce and of his grandson as well mm. um, and how he later handled the situation. Mm. From that same period of time, you're teaching here in New York and building an incredible community yourself, one that happened to include a lot of celebrities, but those celebrities would just kind of roll into <laughs> class. Gwyneth Paltrow, Madonna. Could you talk about your teacher-student relationship and, and how meaningful over the past 20, 30 years that's been for you as the teacher yourself with your own community around the studios? Uh, I don't believe that the guru tradition is something that works for Westerners, at least for yoga, people who are just yoga teachers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if you're growing up in, say, ISKCON or something, or you're growing up in an organization where they're very much instituting the guru-disciple relationship and tradition and you follow that, then it can be done very well. But for yoga specifically, uh, it doesn't work. At least I've seen that it doesn't work all that well um, because we have a cultural disconnect for the most part, you know, about what the guru is and what we are and what that relationship should be. It's not part of our culture. So it's misunderstood. And uh, I mean, this was something that you know, I know that I did and many of us did with Patabi Joyce's. We had these ideas of what the guru was based on the books we were reading of Ramakrishna and Ram Das and Ramana Maharshi and, and all of the saints, you know, the, the autobiography of a yogi. And we'd read these books and then there were a lot of us who were there practicing with him and we wanted that person. And we superimposed those ideas onto him. Like, mm. we, you know, we forced them onto him. Mm. I mean, I totally did that. Um, I totally wanted him to be that kind of a, a person, but mm -hmm. he, he, he wasn't. I love that you're saying this, by the way, because one of the things that really struck me in reading your book is that you talk about this idea of narrative, of, of the sort of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. <laughs> and you quote James Baldwin, and I wanted to read it here because I, I just feel like, I don't know, this quote has been ringing in my head since I read it. He writes, this collision between one's image of oneself and what one actually is, is always very painful. And there are two things you can do about it. You can meet the collision head on and try to become what you really are, or you can retreat and try to remain what you thought you were, which is a fantasy. And in the context of this conversation of sort of what we project onto others, but also what we project onto ourselves, I felt like I, <laughs> I had to bring it up. How should we be thinking about these life stories, whether they're our own or a guru? Well, let me just back up for a moment and finish this one thought. Mm -hmm. And I love that quote also, and I love James Baldwin. But I value the guru tradition. I deeply value it. And, you know, I'm definitely still engaged with it with my own personal 
feelings of respect and gratitude for teachings and the privilege to be able to be taught them, experience them, and pass them on. Mm. But what I am not is I am not a guru, nor would I want to be one. So my relationship with my students is from my perspective of spiritual friendship. That I think that's like a good model for Westerners to follow. Like don't worry about the guru stuff and don't worry about being a big teacher, but just think that maybe I know a little bit more about yoga than some of the people coming to class. And I'll share that as spiritual friends so that we all continue to grow together. And that's it. That's how I think of of my relationship with them. I used to be a much stricter teacher than I was because I saw that's what Patabi Joyce was doing and I thought that's how I should be. So I used to be a, a lot meaner than I am now back in the 1990s. I don't think I'm like that so much anymore. Uh, I think that time and becoming a father and trying to be a good husband has softened me in the understanding of what it is that we're really looking for. We still need discipline, but we don't need to be mean. Mm. You know, we don't need to be hard. We need to be dedicated, but we don't have to impose. The dedication has to come from within the, the student and we should inspire that dedication because we're dedicated, but not because we, we tell them to. Mm. So there's a lot of top-down teaching and a lot of pontificating that happens in the quote-unquote yoga and meditation worlds. I don't know why I said quote-unquote, but I did. <laughs> and um, so... I don't know how helpful that is because what that does is that takes our own personal prejudices about a, a practice, a system, or a way of being, and then we impose it on another human being. Like That's not our job. Uh, our job is to be sharing techniques and giving guidance, not imposing. That's how I view the importance of this relationship. Mm. It can't be an imposition, and um, it needs to be a... Um, want to say a welcoming environment but it's an educational environment we're all learning we're all growing mm. and we're all at different places but spiritual friendship i think that's where it's at for the west i yeah. hope that's where it's at yeah and it's almost like conversing with them as you would with yourself if you're going to be honest about it yeah and i think honesty is important people respond well to knowing that you know you struggle with something mm. if people think that oh that other individual is perfect and everything has come to them because they're perfect and they're so good at it and I want to be like them, then that's not it. You know, that's another false narrative. That's another putting someone on a pedestal. Mm. And when you build up a pedestal, you have to dig a hole in front of them to get earth for the pedestal and you put yourself down in it. So um, <laughs> that's not a great, you know, that's not a great relationship. Mm. Uh, the guru tradition has a lot of subtleties to it but it's founded on respect, appreciation, awe, and um, gratitude. And those are the things that I think as Westerners we can take. And there are other cultural things that we might not understand because mm. it's not part of our culture. We're too individualistic in the West. Yeah. You know, and that individualism doesn't always work to our benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the distinction you've made between freedom as an idea and hedonism. Yeah. That's the idea that uh, in America that freedom is we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and that no one can impede it. You know, no one should stand in our way of accomplishing that. And that's really hedonism. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Hindu traditions, freedom starts with restriction to knowing what are the boundaries of behavior. And that leads you to an inner freedom of spirit rather than an outer freedom of indulgence. Mm. 
to finish, now that you've had more than 30 years of yoga practice, is there anything you'd like to tell your 1988-89 self? Well, yes, I would. The thing I would tell my 1988-1989 self is don't start teaching yoga yet. I would tell myself to practice for a good 10 or 12 years before I started teaching because well, the mistake that I made was I started teaching too early. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you don't know anything back then, you know? I think a lot of people start teaching too early. And they say that teaching is the best way to learn something, but sometimes practice is a really good way to learn something as well. That's really the big change, mm-hmm. the big, big thing I tell myself. Take your time. You know, take your time. Practice more before you start teaching. And I only say that for selfish reasons because I feel like I would have made more progress in my my, my practice. So, <laughs> you know, honestly, the, the way we should look at it is like, no, don't change anything because everything you did brought you to the point that you're at right now. Like you needed to make all those mistakes in order to learn in order to be this imperfect person that, that you are now. Mm. So you can continue to see what unfolds. Um, so it's only for selfish reasons that I say don't start teaching yet so that I could have made more progress in my practice. <laughs> but who knows, maybe that would have become like a great impediment to me, just like getting really good at yoga could have been another narrative stumbling blockers we use in the West, an ego stumbling block. Mm. I remember I was um, living in my first apartment on Cornelia Street after I graduated from high school. And there was a rainstorm and I was lying in bed And I was thinking about the nature of my awareness, like who was being aware of what in that moment. And I was thinking to myself, the awareness that I feel inside me right now is always going to be the same awareness. And the person that I am when I'm 50 years old is going to be exactly the same person as who's lying in this bed right now trying to get a sense of their awareness. And Mm. maybe I'll look different. Maybe I won't have a mohawk anymore or long hair. You know, maybe I won't dress the same, but I'll be the same person. And I feel that. I feel that I'm the same person Mm. now as I was when I was a teenager because that person is our awareness. I think we'll end there. That was beautiful. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks. Thanks for your honesty and being so open and sharing your story and, uh, Wow, I have a lot to think about. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. And um, I, I hope the Patabi Joyce thing is not upsetting to too many people. I know it's, very, it's been a very painful experience. And, um, you know, I don't minimize the pain which was caused at all. And, and I wish that I was a stronger person back then and that um, I could have stood up for the women who needed to be stood up for at that time. And, and, and I didn't have the resources to do that. I had too much fear to do that. Um, so if there was something that I could have done different, actually, that's probably the thing mm. I would say that I would have done different. Mm. I would have been a stronger person to stand up against injustice. Mm. Thanks, Eddie. Thank you. Extra thanks to our Season 3 sponsor, Alang Anzuna. Alang Anzuna's watchmakers are characterized by diligence, patience, artistry, a pursuit of innovation, and the persistent belief that everything is possible, followed by the ambition to achieve it. 
You can find out more about Alang Anzuna at www.alange-soehne.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Listen to our other podcasts at a distance by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Pat McCusker. <laughs>